There is none like him. Luke chapter 6 is where we're going to start. So I want you to go in and find that. And uh, so find a Bible. And then if you want to outline to follow along with, that's in the insert. And so we're going to talk about uh, a few things this morning uh, uh, on the the outline. If you'd like to keep up with notes and that sort of thing, it'll be on the PowerPoint and say a few things from um, from that. We've gotten to a really, really important scripture in our study of Luke chapter uh, through the gospel of Luke. Now, there is a little bit of a typo in the, uh, in the fold is mine. Uh, it says on your insert, a God-centered life, the God who made everything. And then it says Luke 6, 29. That should be Luke 6, 20. That's the verse that we're going to start with. So if you get a little bit of a, a obsession over everything looking right, then you're going to turn that 9 into a 0. And then we'll look at another scripture as we go along. But it's really important. We kind of got to a crux, uh, a really important matter here in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is uh, teaching and just just... Follow along with me with this thought. The greatest teacher who ever lives, when he begins his full-on teaching ministry, there's something that he says first. So, if he's the greatest teacher who ever lives, he knows all things, and uh, nobody can teach better than him, let's make this assumption, and I think it's a pretty good assumption, whatever he says first must be really, really important. And what he has to say first, in Luke chapter 6, verse 20 He starts off with this word, blessed. That's a really, really important word in the Bible. We don't use that word very much, right? Sometimes we say, I hope you have a blessed day, or uh, we're going to say the blessing before, before eating. But it's a really, really important word in the Bible, and it's a word that God loves to use. And this is what the word means. It means in its simplest form, or simplest definition, it means happy. Are you happy, by the way? Not not to go off on a tangent, but... Are you happy in your life right now? Are you, are you actually happy? Uh, 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 many people look for happiness in the wrong places. So, so Jesus is going to tell us how to be happy. And it's not just a kind of surface happiness. Blessed, that word, that doesn't mean happy today and it might change tomorrow. Blessed is the word that God means when he talks about a happiness that you have that is not contingent on the circumstances around you. If they stay the same or if they change, then your happiness stays the same or it changes. This happiness that Jesus is talking about in Luke 6, it's sort of an uninterruptible happiness. An unchangeable happiness. A deep-rooted happiness that no matter what happens tomorrow, no matter what the doctor says tomorrow, no matter what the bank says tomorrow, whatever the employer says tomorrow, at the end of that day you would still be irrevocably happy. So Jesus is going to start to teach about happiness because look at verse 20, verse 21, verse 22. You keep seeing this word over and over and over again, right? Blessed, blessed, blessed. Now here is the uh, author of life telling us how you're actually to be happy. So if he's going to teach us, then I think it's uh, a wise thing for us to be teachable, right? And to say, what is it that the God who knows everything says actually brings happiness And the truth of the matter is, what he has to say is a message that you pretty much won't hear anywhere else. When you go home today and cut on the television and the advertisement starts coming, none of the advertisements are going to be based on this truth. He says, blessed are the poor, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now what does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the poor, theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Is he saying, blessed are those who don't don't have any money? Well, that's not exactly what he's saying, although I would suggest to you that people who don't have a whole lot of money can get 
to the right conclusion faster than those who have a whole lot of money, the spiritual truth that we're going to talk about. Jesus does say elsewhere, it's very difficult for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of heaven because of this point that we're going to talk about this morning. To get a little bit of clarity, we would borrow from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. When Matthew's version of this sermon goes like this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now listen, that's where Jesus begins. And if you're going to know God, that's where, that's where you're going to have to begin. There is no jumping over this step. You ever like to jump over steps in your life? Ever get to a line and say, ah, no, no, no. You ever do this at the grocery store? You, get, you, you kind of play the game where you see somebody else is going to the line and you, maybe this is just me. I don't know why I do this, but I sort of race them in my mind. Have you ever done this? Oh, they're going to go over there. I'm going to go to the self-checkout line. And then we're just going to race. And, 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 and if you want to know God, I just want you to know you, you can't step over. You can't go around this step. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does, what does he mean when he says, happy are the poor, specifically in spirit. Why is this, of all things, where Jesus says that we have to start? And I think it's this, if I can put it this way, is everybody on the planet, I know making big, broad statements like this is always interesting, but I think the Bible would back me up on this. Because, by the way, the Bible makes some pretty broad, sweeping statements, so we shouldn't be afraid of them. Everybody on the planet is either man-centered or God-centered. Everybody either starts with people or they start with God. And wherever you start has a whole lot to do with where you end up. If you start with people, then people can sort of become uh, judges of, of God. And that's where a lot of people come to. So they, they, they sort of think that God is made in, in our image. However, the Bible says just the opposite that we're actually made in His image. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? A few things that I'll suggest to you, and then we'll get to another scripture and line, out, uh, line up some things. Being poor in spirit means God is God, and we are not. And I know that sounds really, really, really simple. But it's a really hard thing for proud, sinful self-righteous people to adopt. And in fact, nobody will adopt that idea unless the Holy Spirit of God comes and awakens you to the idea. So there's a place that I think the Bible starts that helps us to understand He's really, really, really big, right? He's really, really glorious and grand and majestic and holy and righteous. And we're really, really, really not. In fact, there's a page that'll help you understand this. Just a page of information, if you could get it down, if you knew what this page of information says, it helps us get to the starting line. And here's what the page of information says. Are you ready for it? Here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was without form and it was void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering above the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. 
and he called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters to separate the waters that are beneath the expanse from the waters that are above the expanse. And God made the expanse. And the expanse separated the waters that were beneath the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning. Who's following along with me? The second day. And then God said, and then God said, let the waters that are beneath the expanse be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were together, he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the dry land sprout vegetation. Plants bearing seeds and fruit trees in which is their seed bearing fruit. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation. Plants yielding seed and these fruit trees. You got one in your, in your yard, right? Fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning. You with me still, right? The third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and to be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And God made the two great lights, the greater to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night and the stars. And God set the lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, to rule the day and to rule the night and to separate the night from the day. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And then God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea creatures and every living thing which moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, and fill, the, and fill the seas, and to the birds of the earth, he said, multiply. And there was evening and there was morning. Are we on the fifth day? The fifth day. And then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, livestock, and creeping things. Encountered any creeping things this week? And the beasts of the earth. And it was so. And God created the beasts of the earth and the livestock and everything that creeps upon the earth. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. That's where the Bible begins That's where we begin in understanding that we're poor in spirit and he's holy and righteous. Fundamental lesson number one of the Bible. He's the creator, not us. He's in control, not us. He's God, we're not. 
He says what's, what goes, not us. If He's the Creator and we're the creature, then we give an account to Him, we're responsible to Him, and we will be judged by Him. So I want to give you seven things. You know, people, when it comes to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you want to get some interesting reading. There's thousands of books written about what Genesis chapters 1 and 2 mean, and what is this, and is this, this, this. Here's seven fundamental things that we learn from the first two chapters. And in our study together, what we're going to kind of bridge off of the Gospel of Luke in is a broad overview of the Bible over the next several Sundays, kind of carrying us through the summer. At the end of it, we'd all be able to say, here is the fundamental message, the, the big picture of the Scripture. And it starts here in Genesis 1 with, first of all, the God who made everything. The first thing that we learn about him here in Genesis chapter 1 is that God simply is. God simply is. Did you see that the Bible does not begin with a long philosophical argument about the existence of God? It doesn't, it doesn't begin with this long treatise on if you look at this and if you look at that. and then you, Now those things can be helpful and I've read some good books on the evidence of, of God. But here's how the Bible begins. In the beginning, what? God. God is. The, the, the Bible does not begin with a long set of arguments to prove His existence. It does not begin with a philosophical argument to prove His existence. It simply says that He does exist. And now, everybody on the planet has to either come to one of two camps. Either He is, or He is not. It can't be both. The Bible says... That he is. Now, if human beings are the center of everything, this approach doesn't make any sense. We, 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 sh- we should demand an explanation if we're the center of everything. We have then the right to sit back and judge whether it likely is that God exists or not, to evaluate the evidence and then become the judges of God. But the God of the Bible is not like that. The Bible simply begins simply rather, but dramatically, in the beginning, God. He is not the object that we evaluate. He is the creator who made us. And if that's so, it changes all the dynamics. Now, in Romans 1, Paul does make an argument, by the way, for the existence of God. And it's based primarily on Genesis 1. He says that all people everywhere all to be able to know that God exists by doing one simple thing, and that's looking at what He's created. Now, have you ever gone to the, uh, to the ocean and stood out and looked at how absolutely huge the ocean is and had this thought, wow, what a marvelous series of coincidences and blind chance over billions of years led to this. If you ever stood at the Grand Canyon and had that thought, billions and billions and random chance and this, that, that, or the other. Now I know that what's called the educated world today says that's how we all came here. The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Some people are able to look at nature and conclude, no God. And the Bible says there is somebody who can do that, who can say in his heart there is no God. And the Bible calls that person a fool. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Looking at creation and saying it came by chance is like looking at the Mona Lisa and saying, wow, look at the results of that paint spill. 
Leonardo would be offended if you said that. And God is too. He says, I am the creator. And what I've created, it will give an account to the maker. One, God simply is. Secondly, what we learn from this text is that God made everything that is non-God. God made everything else. There's a clear distinction between creature and creator. God is not a creature. He has no beginning. If someone asks, well then, where did God come from? The Bible answers that his existence is not dependent on anything or anyone else. Now, my existence is not like that. And we've got to be careful about thinking that we are like that. Now, you know, you had a beginning. You have a beginning. God does not. My existence has a beginning. By contrast, God's not like that. He has no cause. He just is. Everything else in the universe began somewhere. And that also means that everything else in the universe, apart from God, is ultimately dependent upon God. Number three, there is only one of Him. There is only one of Him. There is only one of Him. (laughs) Not dozens of gods. But in this account, Genesis 1, we do get a glimpse that though He's one, there is complexity to His nature. You heard this text, right? Then He said, let us make man in our image. Now, If you or I made a statement like that, you would conclude there's something wrong, right? If you said, Brandon, where, what year were you born? And I said, we were born in 1979. You'd say, well, something's, he misunderstood the question. No, we don't say we. No, that didn't even make any sense, did it? I don't say we. But God said, let us. There's a complexity to his nature. Now, we're just in Genesis 1. As we go broadly through the Scripture, we'll see that He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number four, God is a talking God. He speaks, and He speaks personally. He tells Adam and Eve, we didn't read this text in particular, but in Genesis 2, He tells Adam and Eve what their responsibilities are. He's a a talking God. He's a personal God. He's not the unmoved mover, some spirit impossible to define, some mystical experience. He has personality and he discloses it by by speaking. Let's look at one of the things that God said. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Here's one of the things that he says. Genesis 2, 24. God, when he's speaking of marriage, says... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And you can get just right from here. When God speaks, we ought really, really, really to pay attention because when he tries to deviate from what he says, he made it, what's going to happen? There's ultimately going to be a breakdown. And we'll just use this one text. He says this four things about marriage. First of all, there's got to be a severance. Therefore, a man shall do what? Leave his mother and his father. What's he saying? You come into a new phase of life. When we do a wedding, when I do a wedding ceremony, we always make this perfectly clear. You're leaving where you've come from. right? Uh, You're leaving mom and dad behind. This is why, by the way, most dads get a little misty-eyed when they walk down the aisle. Because they understand. My little girl, I'm what? Giving her, what do we say? Away. Why do we say that? We base it on the scripture. Whether this scripture is read or not in the context of a wedding, we understand there's a change. And God said you're you're cutting off a former manner of life. So husbands don't say, well, that meal was okay, but my mom makes it better. 
You're going against the Word of God, right? It doesn't, she used to make it that way. Now you've united yourself to somebody else. There's severance. You used to play video games when you were a single guy. Now you're a married man and you say, bye-bye, right? You used to do whatever you wanted to do on the weekends, but now you're a married man. You, it, and it's, by the way, can I just say this? Now it's much, much, much better. It's not good that a man should be alone. That's what he said too, right? So, so you're leaving a former manner of life. And then he says, and you hold fast to his wife. There's severance, and then there's permanence. Meaning I'm making a change, and I'm keeping this change for the rest of my life. There's a permanence. And then, when there's been severance, and then there's been permanence, then there's unity, and they shall become one flesh. But I want you to know, you try to skip steps on God, it will not work out. What do you mean? You want unity in your marriage? You better have some severance, and you best have some permanence. Because you, don't take, you take those things off the table, you've forsaken the, the unity. And then, and then lastly, there's severance, there's permanence, there's unity, and ultimately, there's intimacy. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, that's what people want out of marriage. They want intimacy. But to have the, the great blessing of marriage, you've got to do it God's way. You've got to have severance. You've got to have permanence. You've got to have unity. And then that leads to intimacy. And that's just an example that God's a talking God. He's telling Adam and Eve, here's how you do this. And about 18 verses later, here's what we hear Adam say. The woman that you gave me, she did it. It's her fault. What's gone? Intimacy is gone. What's gone? Unity's gone. What's gone? Uh, permanence is gone. What's gone? Severance is gone. You gave her to me. Now it's your... And uh, what's entered the, f- uh, the arena, by the way, has been sin. We'll talk more about that coming, coming up. Let's go back to the first two chapters. Number five, everything God made is good. Very good. Now you heard what God's Word says in Genesis 1. You heard no mention of hospitals, did you? No mention of cemeteries. No mention of medicine. No, everything God made, God made very good. I don't know the number of times it says it, but over and over and over again, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And He knows everything. You know what that means? It really was good. Sometimes somebody tells you, oh, that movie, that was so great, you should go see it. And then you see it, and you say, that was a terrible movie. No, when God says that it's good, what it means is it actually is good. It really is good. Everything God made is good. Very good. Number six, God comes to an end of his creative work and he rests. We didn't read these verses, but I'll read them to you now. Chapter two, thus the heavens and earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God comes to an end of his creative work and he rests. God does not rest because he's worn out and tired. That's not what that text means. God rests, it's saying, because he was finished with the job. After he'd finished uh, making everything he made, he didn't need to add anything to it. He stops not because he's worn out. He stops because he's finished. And then he marks the seventh day in a special way. He says, this day is going to be unlike any of the other days. And again, when we talk about understanding God and what his word says, I do think it's important to note that we ought to adopt that and understand it and respect it and make it holy as well. So this is a day unlike any other day. 
do, 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 we, do we treat the day of worship differently and distinctly from all the other days? Now, again, increasingly, we live in a culture that makes no distinction between this day and any other day. But we want to be a people who say, this is a different day. And then, uh, and then number seven, the creation proclaims His greatness and His glory. Just listen to Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no, nor are there words where His voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. In them He has set a tent for the sun. And goes on to talk about the glory of, of creation. The creation proclaims His greatness and His glory. And as you know the God of the Bible, here's an unmistakable conclusion you've got to make. It's not the Bible that's boring. It's the world that's boring. If you know the God of the Bible. Now here's the distinction between God-centeredness and man-centeredness. God-centered people, I really believe, think the world is the boring thing. The NBA playoffs are boring. Iron Man is boring. Television is boring. The movie theater is boring, not the God of creation. He's not boring. Video games, you want something boring, sit there and play video games. He created all things. He's not boring. If you view God as boring, the disconnect isn't with Him. (laughs) He's not the one that's boring. The disconnect's got to be Oh, it's got to be with us. We'll see this a little bit in the coming weeks. But something happens, and the people that God made begin to hide themselves from Him. Now, up until this moment, they had met with Him and walked with Him and heard from Him and loved Him and been in His fellowship in the cool of the day. And then something happens and tears everything apart. And you might be thinking that right now. Brandon, God simply is. God made everything. There's only one of Him. He's a talking God. He comes to the end of his work and he rests and creation proclaims his greatness. That's all fine and good, but everything's messed up. Now, he didn't make hospitals, but there are hospitals. I'll leave from here today and I'll drive over to Nashville to the cemetery to do a funeral. That's what I'm going to do today. What happened? Something huge happened. But it's not how God created it. There is something wrong. And would you believe this? The God who made everything has now done everything to make it right again, even though he didn't do anything wrong. That's an amazing God. Three things that it says about us. We'll do it quickly, those other three statements. Number one, number one, we are made in the image of God. All through the creation account, everything God makes, There's one thing that is put forth as unique and distinct from all the other things. It's only one thing of which the Lord says, we will make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, I don't advocate that you ought to be mean to the beasts of the earth. I don't advocate that you ought to be mean to the livestock. The creeping things... That's a little harder, isn't it? 
But human beings have a distinction that none of the other animals do. Your dog doesn't have it. (laughs) He's a sweet puppy, I know. Your kitty cat doesn't have it. They're not made in the image of God. It's only of man that he says, we'll make him in our image. Now, what does that mean? It means a few things. We won't go through everything that it means now. But a few things that I'll give you that it means. First of all, God is a talking God. And therefore, human beings are talking beings. Right? I'm standing up here, microphone on, talking to you. You walk out there, there's not a similar thing going on with the squirrels. In fact, if you got outside and the squirrels were all talking to each other, we'd, all, we'd be all un, uh, done in, by the way, in this neighborhood, because they outnumber us about ten to one. They just, take, they just take us on, right? No, no. He's a talking, a relational being, and so are you, and so am I. Uh, we're, we're meant to talk to each other, to know each other. God talks to human beings, and they talk back. There's a commonality in speech and knowledge that can be articulated. Now, let's be careful with it. We don't know everything that He knows. And our words are not as wise as His words. And so the wisest thing that we can do is to, in humility, say, well, what has He, what has he said? There's also a reflection of God in how human beings are creative. We're not creative in the way that God is, but human beings can do some pretty remarkable things. They can make amazing drawings, paintings, architecture, music, books, writing, and so on. Some human beings are wonderful at woodworking, or others at needlepoint. Others are remarkably skillful and creative with a guitar or a piano. You don't walk into an art museum and ask, did an elephant do that? No, human beings are creative. And human beings also reflect God in their capacity to to work. We should never, ever think of our work as somehow disconnected to God. That here today we're meeting with God, and tomorrow when i got to go to work, oh, that's not got anything to do with God. It's got everything to do with God. How you work reflects what you believe about God. In his book, The God Who Is There by D.A. Carson, which is an awesome book, and many of the things organizationally that we have this morning are based on that book. Here's what he says. From the Bible's point of view, just hang with me, meaning in life is bound up with the fact that we were made by God in His image and for God with an eternal destiny. This radically changes our reception of what human beings are. Otherwise, we slouch toward what one philosopher called self-referential incoherence. Now, stick with me. What he means is that we compare ourselves with ourselves. We compare how we look with how other people look. We compare how smart we are with how other people, how smart they are. We, we compare a ball player to how he plays ball compared to somebody else. We compare one person at work. To, that's that's what, what... We have no external standard by which anything should be judged, and we cannot find an anchor for our being anywhere. So we, listen to what he says, because this is a pretty accurate statement, in my opinion, about the culture we live in. So we drown ourselves in temporary pleasures or pursuit of money or self-promotion, but we have no anchoring that locates us and gives us a meaning beyond ourselves. There is no scale. That's what happens when you reject in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Number two, what it says about us is that we were made male 
and female. The Bible specifically says that. Men and women are different. Different from one another. Sometimes you've got to state the obvious in an increasingly unbelieving culture. The person who said that men and women are not different either was not married or did not have children, right? We're made different so that we could be made one. That's what he's getting at, by the way, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And then third, the man and his wife were innocent. Adam and Eve, it says at the end of chapter 2, had nothing to hide. Have you got anything to hide? You got anything in your life you hope nobody finds out about? Maybe it's your spouse. Oh boy, I hope they don't find out about this. Think about that statement. Genesis 2, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They had never lied to each other yet. Never nurtured bitterness yet. Never succumbed to lust yet. Never been puffed up in arrogance yet. Never been drawn to darkness yet. And this again is Genesis chapter 2. That sounds wonderful, by the way, doesn't it? So what happened? Why are we not this way now? In short, Genesis 3 happened. So in conclusion for this morning, here's, here's a big, big conclusion. What the Bible says about creation is the grounding of human accountability and responsibility to the Creator. What the Bible says about creation, He made it, is the grounds of human accountability and responsibility. So why should you obey God? When I open up the Bible and preach from His Word, why should any of you listen to it? When I get to preaching, why do you not walk out? Why do you decide I'm not coming back next Sunday? Why, when you go home, do you open up the Bible and read it and study it? Who He is, or who is He to tell us what to do? Now, if He tells me that I need to walk in that direction... Why should I do it? Why should I not say, but I want to walk in that direction? Surely I'm free to say, I don't believe that, and I won't follow it. Surely I'm free to choose other gods or invent my own. I can defy him unless he made you. And if that's true, it changes everything. If he made you, you owe him everything. Life and breath, and everything else. If He is your Maker, and you choose not to see it that way, you're out of line with the One who made you, and ultimately, you're even out of line with yourself. You've not chosen freedom, you've chosen prison. And then I'm fighting against myself and the God who made me. And perhaps that's how some people in the room feel today. All of human accountability and responsibility before God is grounded in His creative work. So, if we do not recognize that simple truth that God made everything that itself when we don't recognize it is testimony to the blindness that alienates us from him to begin with it is for our good that we recognize it not because he's a big bad bully but because without him we would not even be here in the first place and if he did make us we must surely give an account to him now Here's what's going to happen. Those are big, lofty ideas. So here's the temptation. Walk out that door and drown yourselves in temporary pleasures so you don't have to think about it. Go watch the television. Go play golf. Go do a thousand things so that this one thought doesn't occupy your mind. 
He made me, and I must give an account to Him. And here's the remarkable thing. He made us, and then He became like us. He took on our flesh. And Jesus Christ, when He's teaching in the Gospel of Luke, this all-knowing, all-powerful, speaking, personal God comes up and says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. And what he's saying at first is, Blessed are those who know you're not the center of the universe. God's the center of the universe. You're not spiritually wealthy. You're actually sinful and spiritually poor. And that's actually the beginning of being happy. He's the creator. I'm the creator. Created, rather. I am the one who is poor in spirit. We're going to stand together, pray together, have a time of invitation. What I encourage you to do during the time of invitation is just take Jesus' clear statement, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And take this time of invitation before your mind starts racing to other things to allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to measure in us whether or not we're prepared to stand before the One who made us. So Father, thank You for Your Word. And if it's true, then there are major (laughs) ramifications for us as people. Father, thank You that You are the Creator. You made everything. The lights in the heavens, the great sea creatures with which the waters swarm, the beasts of the field, the livestock, the sun, the moon, the heavens. You made all of it. And You made us. And You said we're made in Your image. And now, Father, that we live in a fallen world full of suffering, decay, disease, We feel very disconnected from the original created order, but we give you praise and honor and glory that through Christ you are making all things new. Use this time of invitation to help us ponder deep spiritual truth. And I pray that you'd use it to bring us to a point of spiritual poverty to know that we have nothing in and of ourselves, but it's to your cross we cling. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.